I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast. Jonathan, your book is out. It's publication day. It oh my God, is. it's already on Amazon, number one bestseller. Um, I, I, this well, is amazing I'm so stuff. G- yeah, I'm sort of still a bit speechless about that, to be honest, because today is the publication day and you always imagine it being a long haul and quite a sort of long march to get people to notice a book and to talk about it. And it is literally number one on the Amazon bestsellers list today. Um, you know, I've done a few interviews and, you know, maybe people heard those and thought this sounds interesting. But uh, yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm a bit blown away by it because I didn't think that would happen. I mean, sometimes you know when things like this are going to happen. I didn't have any idea this was coming. I didn't see this coming. So we're going to tell our listeners that next week we're going to talk at length. We're going to do something we've never done before here on the podcast. I will interview you. So if I were you, I would be very prepared. That's all I'm saying. I Um, hear that you're a pretty (laughs) tough interrogator. So when we come to talk about The Escape Artist by Jonathan Friedland, published by John Murray, now available, um, I I fear I'm going to be That was a very elegant plug-in, my friend. Very elegant. Yeah, we had to get that in. Yeah. No, look, we'll we'll talk about it properly next week. Uh, And and I feel as if you, and well, you have actually read it, uh, but Unholy Listeners have been sort of in on this process as it's been developing, because every now and again we have mentioned it, haven't we? We've talked about it. Yep, we have. And uh, and so we're going to have this uh, discussion about it uh, next week. I think we talked about it before, but now that it's out in the world yeah, and you can actually is. physically buy a book. Um, I mean, that was the amazing thing when I sort of um, went into bookshops today, which I did um, to sign copies and to see it as a real thing. It's quite a moment. It just is. I mean, there's something about it. It's you, your computer for hours, hours, days on end and documents and emails. And then suddenly it's an actual physical object. So, yeah, I could talk about it for a long time, but we are (laughs) going to have a proper talk next week. This was one of these strange weeks, Yoni, where our sort of universes kind of weirdly merged. And there was this strange alignment of the stars, which I don't think we did particularly see coming in advance. But on Monday night... It turned out that both of us simultaneously were waiting to see what the fate of the country's prime minister was going to be. Exactly. I mean, there were two prime ministers who we should say are as different as can be and both sharing a similar sinking feeling, kind of maybe yeah. watching power uh, slip uh, through their fingers. And we were both sort of uh, getting these updates. It, it was in a 20-minute time slot where first... It was uh, Naftali Bennett who lost a vote, and we will talk about this at length in this episode, the cascading consequences of that uh, vote. And then Boris Johnson actually, how should I say it, squeaking by a no-confidence vote? Yes. I mean, if you were talking about any other British prime minister or any other conservative prime minister who has faced votes of no-confidence, and there have been a few, you would say he had been thoroughly humiliated in this vote. He got a, a worse uh, vote, worse result than Margaret Thatcher got in 1990 and that um, that Theresa May got in 2018, John Major in 1995. These were terrible results for him. But because it's Boris Johnson, it kind of doesn't matter because his own people were saying, you know, as long as he gets wins by a single vote, that's enough. So normally you'd feel so humiliated that 148 of your own members of parliament, only conservative people voting, by the way, this wasn't a general vote of the whole parliament. Mm. This was just his own political tribe. 148 of them out of 300 and, uh, 360 were saying, no, thanks, we don't want you, as um, 
as prime minister and he thinks yeah fine great we survived that a win's a win and <laughs> you know this is a theme that we've talked about a bit in the trump era as well it's very difficult to 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 deal with somebody who feels no shame or embarrassment because normal politicians would feel humiliated by that he doesn't feel that he just thinks fine the, unless the rules tell me i've got to leave i'm staying so it's not and, they're going to open the floodgates right you can't say for sure this is the beginning of the end is what you're saying mm. No, I don't think you can because under the rules, he's safe for another year. That's one thing. Uh, they can't. They can always change those rules. But also, um, a whole lot of the conservatives are left thinking, "Well, now what? What do we do?" And he thinks, "Well, unless you've got a candidate who can come forward and beat me, I'm fine. I'm still here." So they're all looking a bit stunned and shell shocked. And yes, there are more blows to come, and that will drain away his authority. But in a way, those are kind of political metaphors. He just thinks. Do I literally have the votes? If I do, I'm staying. And it does remind me a bit of how Trump was with, um, you know, impeachment or even losing an election. We have to uh, read out the tweet uh, by our uh, political commentator, Amit Segal, who was on this uh, program as well. He wrote, after both votes, he said, get a humiliating result in a confidence vote, but hold on at all costs. Break the law, but keep your head high. Blame your aides for your failures. Congratulations, Boris Johnson, your Britain's first Israeli prime minister, which we it's both so good, found though. quite amusing. So uh, good. I mean, you know, that even made it here, actually. The Times newspaper here picked up on that and, yep. you know, reproduced that. It's such a clever observation. And, you know, it appealed to me because do you remember those pieces that would say, you know, Bill Clinton is America's first black president? <laughs> there was a cover story in a magazine in America that had Barack Obama is America's first Jewish president. So Boris Johnson being Britain's first Israeli <laughs> prime minister, you know, why not? Um, if shamelessness is part of Israeli politics, then he in committee room 10, you know, where normally where the Conservative Party met to get you know to cast their votes a result like this would have been shaming but if he doesn't feel shame it's all fine so he just left thinking yeah fine i'm so, still here so shall we uh continue from talking about we don't know if it's the beginning of the end but maybe the really end of the end of the israeli coalition if we should kind of dive into that let's dive into it because this is something you have uh you went out on, on a limb quite early on this and said it was the beginning of the end the only issue was uh, when, not if. And so uh, are events vindicating that judgment? Um, I would say completely, because what happened uh, this week, by the way, in four days from now, Jonathan, Naftali Bennett will mark a year in office, uh, which is uh, you know, an incredibly tumultuous year, and I assume it won't be uh, festive. But I am telling you, yes, I mean, uh, in two words, I'm going to have a lot more than that coming up. But in two words right now, it's over. I mean, I'm saying that because the coalition uh, this week lost in a vote that is essentially a technicality. It's just the extending of the law that extends Israeli uh, law over the settlements in the West Bank. It's just a technicality to extend it. And the coalition lost, and it lost by a margin. It lost 52 to 58. So that says something about where it is. And even if they try and bring the bill again, this is not sustainable as a situation. Now, what is important to say here? just about timetables and timeframes. If Bennett somehow, and he's playing for time right right now, if he somehow survives, again, this uh, summer coalition, the elections in Israel are minimum 90 days. It's usually a little bit more than that. We can see elections in March. If it's shorter than that, if you have someone like Neil Olba, who finally sort of, he's the weakest link in, in Yamina and in, in, in Naftali Bennett's party, breaking and saying, I'm going to be the 61st vote. We're going to dissolve the Knesset. You're going to have a shorter uh, time frame. There's still high holidays, still 90 days. 
maybe elections in November, there's still a little bit of time, but not that much. So we're actually just, we're still driving on the road, but we see the dead end sign uh, pretty clearly. It's funny because things happen so swiftly here, you know, as soon as there was talk of no confidence, the vote was that night. Everything moves very fast. The fact that Naftali Bennett is still there induces in me a kind of feeling of of, of scepticism when people, including you, say, you know, oh, it's gonna, it's all over. Because I think, yeah, you said that, and look, he's still there. And he can still be there in June and August and October. And so you think, but actually, you're right. I mean, it is still over, even if it takes a very, very long time. But just as a matter of calendar politics, the fact that mm. he seems to be on course to have made it a year Lots of people, including his predecessor, Bibi Netanyahu, said that would never happen. I seem to remember him talking mm. about three weeks. It will be over in three weeks, right, he said. Right. And instead, he's still there. Also, there's that feeling with incumbents, which is as long as you're there, something might happen. Yeah. But by, by the way, we're not sure that he's going to be there because remember uh, what might happen if the Knesset actually dissolves. Yes. And we keep saying this, but it's important to, to, to remind our listeners that if the people who vote to dissolve the Knesset, two of them come from Naftali Bennett's bloc, then Yair Lapid becomes the transition uh, head of government. So everything you're seeing now on the chessboard is recalibrating itself to that. Yair Lapid is already planning his moves. Naftali Bennett is desperately starting, is trying to hang on. This is all the maneuvering of, again, the end of days of these, this coalition and looking forward to uh, what will happen next no one said that Israeli politics isn't interesting. But I wanted to no, I, I, I do want to point out two things that happened on that vote on Monday yeah. because it is indicative of a few things that are happening here. One is the fact, and this is really uh, amazing. We talked about what this law is. It's the law putting uh, extending Israeli law over these settlements in the West Bank. Now, what happened in this vote, Jonathan? The BB bloc, the right wing of the, the opposition, voted against this law. And the Israeli left voted for this law. This is like, again, Alice in Wonderland of Israeli politics. It's, it's really incredible. We see this phenomenon around the world where the center doesn't hold, where there's a dichotomy and there's extremes and there no kind, there's less and less reasons to cooperate. And the center can't find any sort of, you can't reach uh, across the aisle and find reasons to cooperate. But here it's even more extreme, because can you imagine in the United States, a situation where Democrats would vote against gun control, or Republicans would vote against abortion uh, restricting laws, because they want to annoy the other side? I mean, really, this is pretty amazing. What the uh, BB bloc thinks is that they're going to lose the battle, but they want to win the war. They want to hasten the, the dissolvement of this government. You, you rightly say this was, uh, procedurally speaking, a technicality, but the substance is really important. One of the big arguments made by those who want to, and we've, we've talked about it on this podcast, tag the, put the apartheid label on Israel's presence in the uh, West Bank and on the occupation is to say the existence of two legal systems. That fact alone makes it you know, analogous to other unpalatable societies and regimes. Um, and this was, and that's why it's so amazing that left parties like Meretz and others were voting to maintain that duality of legal system. You would think on principle, they would say, we can't do that. That is one of the big arguments about this issue, that it's so unjust that someone in Efrat, who commits a crime, faces the Israeli civil authorities, and someone in Ramallah, who, or, you know, a Palestinian town or village who commits any kind of offense has to be hauled before a military 
administration. And that difference, the idea of two legal systems in one land, depending in effect on your ethnicity, uh, but on your citizenship, is seen as so invidious. And yet here it became this test with progressives voting to maintain it. So it is amazing. I do think about this, just to sort of put down a marker about if it really is right that this government is in its uh, death throes, even if they take a long time. Mm -hmm. I do wonder about what that will do in terms of global uh, views of Israel and particularly anti-Israel sentiment. It just strikes me that liberals around the world, I'm not talking about the you know far left who are really committed to the issue, but just general sort of liberal beyond pensant thinking around the world has basically laid off Israel these last 12 months. It just hasn't, other things have been going on, but they've been giving a little bit of a free pass to Naftali Bennett because the optics of this government, which does include Islamist parties, does include left parties, have has sort of drawn the sting of some of the anti-Israel default feeling. And that's partly because in the previous period, and by previous period, I mean 10, 12 years, Netanyahu was was such a global hate figure, almost a, just a, a line you would throw in a speech along with Orban, you know, Netanyahu, that it made it channeled a lot of negative energy at the risk of sounding like Rebecca Newman from uh, We Crashed. <laughs> but it, it it attracted that sort of attention. Without him there, people have been sort of gliding over it, not really looking. Oh, there's some vaguely centrist coalition thing going on. We can give it, you know, we'll lay off Israel a bit. And I just wonder if this coalition does unravel, if there's a return of Likud and Netanyahu, they, you just might see an uptick in... Mm-hmm some of that anti-Israel sort of discourse, uh, energy that has taken a sort of year-long holiday in the Naftali Bennett era. Yeah, well, that, that it still might take a while. And uh, there's no, really, there aren't any guarantees that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is the next prime minister. Obviously, he really wants to be, and it's going to be a fierce election campaign. But we really don't know what the next step is. And again, all likelihood we're going to elections, and all likelihood, the next prime minister of Israel is Yair Lapid. So that changes a little bit what, what you're saying, Yair Lapid, because he's going to head the, the caretaker government going into elections. Um, oh, by the way, just in terms of my point about sentiment, that would mean even more positive feelings right. while he's there, because you know he's branding, he doesn't have the back catalogue that mm-hmm. Naftali Bennett has of no Palestinian state for 200 years. And he doesn't have lines like that in his back catalogue. He's got some, but nothing like. And therefore, you know, the people who don't pay that much attention to Israel will think, oh, yeah, they've got a proper centrist guy running that country. That's fine. Let me check out again. I'll pay attention another six months. They won't know what you know about all the coalition machinations. They'll just think it's not Bibi. It's some guy who's vaguely centrist. You know, let's talk about something else. Yep. I want to kind of maybe point out something else that I uh, found very interesting in this uh, vote on Monday, because when it ended and and some of the um, MKs that voted against it were, were from uh, Ram, uh, especially Mazen Ghanayim from uh, the United Arab List, and Nir Orbach, who, as I said, is now the weakest link in uh, Naftali Bennett's party, and everyone thinks he's the next to resign and leave the coalition, yelled at him at the end of the vote. He said, and I'll say this in Hebrew first, he said, it means the experiment with you, the experiment of sitting with you in a government failed. Now, this is very important because even in six months from now or in a year from now, what will the actual ramifications of the fact that this government fell apart or began to unravel after a year, what will they be on Israeli society? Because we have to remember, this is Naftali Bennett who came from the religious nationalist camp 
the Jewish side. And Mansour Abbas, who came from the Islamist camp on his side, the Arab side. And they did something revolutionary in this, okay? And they, they kind of made this tectonic shift in Israeli politics. And when you think about it today, just this image, I was thinking about it today, if Naftali Bennett went to the Western Wall, he'd be heckled. And Mansour Abbas, if he went to Al-Aqsa, he would be heckled. So what they did was actually appreciated by everyone but the people who are supposed to be voting for them. And what does that mean next? Will the next government actually sit with Rom or not? You know, that is a question, and I think the answer to that means a lot to Israel and to the Israeli society beyond the lifespan of this specific government. I couldn't agree more. I think the diversity of this coalition uh, means that something very important is at stake with its success or failure. But that line thrown across the Knesset floor of the experiment with you has failed, has it? I mean, I get the arithmetic point, the algebra of the coalition failed. Mm -hmm. But you, you tell me, in terms of public opinion, do people feel, not in terms of keeping up the numbers and balance of coalition, but as a project, do people feel this was a bad government? Do they feel it didn't work? Did, do they feel that Ram, the Islamist party, genuinely has no place in an Israeli governing coalition? Because those are different questions from whether or not it maintained its numbers. Right. It's a very different question. Of course, what you asked is the important question um, and, and the salient point. Look, the minute um, Ram entered into this coalition, there were many parts of the opposition, especially the Bezalel Smotrich and parts of the Likud, who woke up and said, Ram are supporters of terror. It didn't matter. There's endless proof of the fact that Netanyahu himself wooed Ram, wanted to sit with them, suggested the moon, basically, for Mansour Abbas to be part of his coalition. The, the person who didn't agree to this was Bezalel Smotrich, I remind you. And now Netanyahu is denying the whole thing. It's kind of like the Kevin McCarthy tapes. It's like, um, sir, you did say these things about Trump. They're on tape. No, no, I didn't. It's the same kind of thing. The sort of denying the demonstrably true and obvious truth. So I think that if Netanyahu will turn around and suddenly need Ram and actually put them in the coalition, suddenly they'll be kosher. So it's a question. But yes, there are many parts of the Israeli society who think that because and I remind you, this is part of the Islamist movement, part of the big umbrella that is the Muslim Brotherhood. So it's easy to say, yes, they are the moderates, but on the side, the most extreme side, there's Hamas. To make that connection is not too difficult, but but I'll return to what you asked, what Mansour Abbas did, and I think that is the important part of his revolutionary you know, vision, was to say, I don't want to deal with anything that has to do with the Palestinian-Israeli issue. I just want to improve the lives of the Arab Israelis. Are you asking me if is it considered a success? I think some people think it is, and some people think it isn't, and that is the truth. And we will see if he does pass the electoral threshold these coming elections, whenever they may be, then that will be part of the answer to your question. Yeah. And I would just say from outside Israel, to the extent that people have a view on the complexion of Israeli governments, I think this one, people have liked it, and people have liked the sort of rainbow coalition element and have wished it well. Um, mm -hmm. And so there will be some degree of you know, unhappiness if it comes tumbling down and the and the narrative will shift. You know, the narrative that Israel was moving on from the BB era will be unwound, I think, if this coalition crumbles, which, as you say, is probably a matter of time. So 
So let's um, talk now about a topic uh, that makes this country so unbelievably interesting, if we didn't convince you thus far. And that topic, uh, Jonathan, is the integration of women into combat units in the IDF, in the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, this is what happened this week. The military had to respond to uh, the High Court of Justice to a petition signed by four women requesting to join special combat units, the most prestigious units of the IDF. We have to say a few things to set the stage on this. First of all, Israel obviously has a mandatory military service for men and women. As such, military is kind of the reflection of Israeli society, the army of the people, what we call Tzva Ha'am. Um, and also, in many cases, kind of thrown reluctantly into the mix of having to solve Israeli society's problems and its culture wars. So, first of all, since about 2005, a uh, number of women in combat units increased to the extent that if we're talking about uh, 2014, there are about 2,300 women in combat units. Today, there are about 6,500. That's about 18% of the combat range in uh, the military. Now, this real revolution, and it is a revolution, what I just described, even, even in numbers, took uh, place during the past decade, especially because of the women themselves. And we have to give them the credit for it. This is kind of a grassroots movement, if I can call it that, right? Women who decided that they want to have this uh, kind of service, that they want to be in combat units, kind of knocking on the doors of the military and having the IDF chiefs of staff at the time, Benny Gantz and Gaidi Eisenkot, allowing this to happen. But they were barred from the sort of frontline ground forces and combat elite units. That is what they were petitioning against now, saying just open up everything. Do it like the U.S. military. If we can handle it, just let us do it. Now, the military, I have to pause and say, is having a bit of an issue with this. First of all, it's saying we're going to do this slowly and we're going to do we want to do it our way. We're very concerned about the health of these women as well, because they're giving out what the military uh, the IDF uh, is doing here is showing you the statistics on women in the military in the U.S. saying, yes, they can go everywhere. But then they have a lot of health issues and problems because of the weight, because of the uh, um, physical uh, challenges. And they say that 50 percent of women in combat units in the U.S. uh, military actually drop out uh, at some point and they don't want that to happen. Also, they feel and some of them were saying it quite clearly. Some of the generals were saying, look, we are not what they would call one of them said in an interview to me once. We are not the uh, ministry of equal rights. We don't have to solve everything and every problem that happens. We need to win a war. That's the most important thing. And you add to that, of course, the pressure from the rabbis of the religious uh, nationalist uh, uh, movement who keep saying, because I described the uptick in women in combat units, there's also an uptick of religious men in combat units. They're saying this is not good for the men and we don't want this to happen. And this is an issue. So please stop doing it at this rate. Um, So this is where we are at this point. There's a lot more to say, and I can say what the military responded to that petition, but I think the whole issue itself is just so interesting in that kind of triangle between the military and the women and the and the religious part of Israeli society. So, so just clarify one piece of this, which is, so yes, this increasing number of women in combat units, but were you saying that once they were in those combat units, they are not necessarily in frontline combat roles? They're in some other roles within the combat units? They are fighter pilots. They are anti-aircraft. They're in artillery in some positions. They're in naval positions. They are, but they won't essentially let them be what we call lochamea chod, which is sort of front line, first line of being the ground forces. That right. to this and the elite units uh, like Sayyid Matkal, that to this point has been closed off, and this is what women 
in combat units and women in general who are enlisting wanted to change. Now, the military is saying, you know what? We're not going to let you into the elites, but we are going to let you into certain units in the engineer corps and the uh, reconnaissance air force unit. We're going to try a pilot for two years with a very limited number of women, which, to be honest, is a little bit like kicking the can down the road. But I do want to point out that the military, uh, the IDF said there is a criteria or specific criteria for women who can go into these units that we will now allow them to. And I, I have to say this out loud because really Really, it's pretty amazing. The criteria is that the female uh, combat soldier who wants to go in has to be 78 kilograms and 166 centimeters in this. We're from, both from the metric system, but this means 171 pounds and a minimum of 5'4". Jonathan, if you can find any woman who's an athlete, 171 pounds and a minimum of 5'4", good luck to you. I, I just feel like that criteria for a woman to enter these units is that they should be a man. So <laughs> this is this is the criteria that set that got a lot of criticism uh, for sure. I'm looking as you and I speak at the cover of a book that was on the shelf of many a diaspora Jewish home in certainly I would say the early '80s, maybe even a bit before. The book is called Daughters of Rachel or Daughters of Rachel, Women in Israel by Natalie Ryan. I'm looking at the cover again now because I remembered it and I wanted to see if I was right. But sure enough, who? what are the images on the cover of a book about women in Israel? There are two images. One is the face of Golda Meir and the other is women in military uniform. And the point I'm making here is that for decades, I would say, in that period in which Israel was seen as some pioneering progressive society, still in that pre-67 or just post-67 period where it was seen as the plucky David against the Goliath of its neighbours, part of the package, along with the kibbutz, things that people admired about Israel, one of them was this. It was the notion that it was some kind of feminist trailblazing society. That was part of the image-making that, yes, it had the first woman prime minister when you know other countries, Western democracies, had not been led by women, but particularly this point about women in combat, it was picked up in all kinds of pop cultural ways. The, the female Israeli soldier, partly as being somehow kind of, I think there was, um, it gave a sort of frisson. You know, there were sort of male commentators who found it kind of titillating. The Israeli, you know, the beautiful Israeli woman in uniform, that was a sort of trope. But also it was seen as feminist uh, and because it was sort of hyper egalitarian. Mm -hmm. So the idea this is now being pushed, a, a new frontier in this discussion is to me interesting because it goes for something that was sort of part of Israel's identity. The other piece of it that I find fascinating, because we've talked about it, is this question of the rabbis and mm -hmm. how much you know pull, clout, they have in Israel society. We talked a few weeks back about abortion rights and how Israel had worked out a kind of package whereby there was lip service to uh, approval, but actually in practice, you explained, it more or less always went through. There was no need for that sort of religious approval. And it seems to me an interesting test, yet again, of the strength of the religious establishment in Israeli life. If they object to women being mixing with men in these combat units, do they get their way or not? Or will another classic status quo type fudge be <laughs> brokered, whereby you know women are in there, but not in there, so that the rabbis are happy? No. So look, I... Uh... It, it's not a hoax. Women are in combat units and more and more so in Israeli military. To be quite clear, I think they won 
and the rabbis lost. Right. It's eighty-eight percent of their eighty-eight percent of combat positions are open up to women. That means you have, as I said, you know, women fighter pilots and naval captains and border police and aerial defense and some artillery units. I mean, they're almost everywhere. And they won because they were, they decided to win and they they did this. Again, there's a lot more to be done. But I mean, this is an interesting story. And I just have to give you one statistic to answer your question about who won. Is it the rabbis or not? Out of the women who are in combat units, 12% of them are religious women in combat Amazing. units. Amazing. So they are upset. The rabbis are not only upset because they're scared of the men who will have to ha- be in mixed units, but they're upset because they're losing the women. And that, I think, is an important point to make. Again, I feel like the military is, after you know, kind of pressing forward at this, is now kind of maybe pausing, thinking, but still... This is basically, I think, a change that is already completely out of out of the bag. It's happening. I, th- I think that's completely fascinating. Putting it together with our conversation about abortion rights the other day, I think it does really paint a fascinating picture that for all the superficial indications and people talking about theocracy and all that, actually in day-to-day life, whether it's abortion rights or women in combat, that religious influence is waning and mm-hmm. other norms are coming into play. By the way, just on the point about how that book cover was just seen as part of a package of things to admire about young, progressive, plucky Israel, how different that would be now about, you know, there are not many progressives around the world who would want to cheer for women in being in combat units in the IDF because they would have to first say, it's good being in the IDF, and they wouldn't necessarily want to say that. And so therefore, the there would be a clash between their feminism on the one hand and equality, you know, egalitarianism, and the, on the other hand, a kind of, oh, you know, it recoil from the idea of Israel and its army. So I think probably you won't get much, many of those kind of magazine covers that we saw in the 70s and 80s. I don't think that will be I, happening anytime soon. I don't, still don't understand why we're plugging any book in this episode that isn't The Escape Artist. Like, why are we yes, doing that? Yes, The Escape that? Artist by Jonathan that? Friedland, available <laughs> by John Murray. It is available in all good bookshops and indeed in, on import in Israel itself. Is that the one you meant? Sorry, I just wanted to clarify that. We should hand out some awards. So uh, I think um, you have a nominee for us. I do. Uh, You know, I like uh, storytelling in our Chutzpah and Mensch Award. Like I like it when someone falls from grace. Kind of like it. Like when someone who we once (laughs) put in the Mensch category should know that they're never Chutzpah proof and they can find themselves one day in the Chutzpah category. And I'm talking about uh, former German Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel, who we've not only put in the Mensch category, but I think dedicated a whole episode to. I'm sure you remember this, Jonathan. I do. Episode 28. I know you do. I know you remember everything. <laughs> no, I couldn't have given you the number, but I do remember <laughs> our conversation. It was called uh, Shalom Farewell of Readers and Goodbye. It was when she Memorable. left uh, when Good she man. left office. Um, and now she gave an interview to Der Spiegel. It's about six months after leaving office. And of course, someone who has been, we should say this, uh, uh, criticized in the past for First of all, uh, you know, not only legitimizing Vladimir Putin, but uh, making Germany more and more dependent on Russian uh, energy and not stopping Putin, for example, when he annexed Crimea and all other issues. And she says there are two things that are pretty amazing. First of all, she says, I have no regrets. I explains everything that she thinks that she did, which was fine. No apologies, of course. But then she says something that caught my eye. And she says the only language Putin understands is the language of force. 
which is a little bit, you know, a little bit of a chutzpah here because, I mean, you know, you're not just an analyst sitting in a studio and having this discussion about what do you think should or should not be done in uh, Ukraine. You're actually someone who held the reins for 16 years and maybe could have used a little bit of the advice of the future Angela Merkel saying that Putin understands um, nothing but force. I mean, that's pretty, I think, pretty remarkable. I agree. It's a classic chutzpah. I think here's where we bring out the air on Sorkin. You think? <laughs> I mean, Putin only understands the language of force. You think, Chancellor? <laughs> like, maybe you could have acted on that when you were in post. I mean, the st- her, uh, her stock has fallen so rapidly. Yeah. More rapidly than a, than a, an ex leader that I can really think of in terms of the the fall from major mensch in terms of all the obits we were included that yep. you know that greeted her departure to now people thinking oh hold on a minute she was a massive Putin enabler yep. by cultivating this dependency on the narcotic of Russian oil and gas so mm-hmm. um, what you've just said there is fantastic it's an exquisite chutzpah example so that duly passes. Yeah, and also proves the uh, Arik Sharon famous adage that says no one ever regretted not giving an interview. So that also proves that, I think. Yeah, no, he would definitely say that. But we don't want to spread that around because that would put both of us out of work. Um, No, so that's excellent. Uh, That passes the committee without any disagreement at all. So we move to our Mensch Awards. I wanted to give a mention en route to Rabbi Pinchas Goldschmidt, who it seems was put under, he was the chief rabbi of um, Russian Jewry based in Moscow and came under big pressure after Russia invaded Ukraine in February, saying that he was put under pressure to essentially announce public support for the war in Ukraine, the invasion of Ukraine, and he wouldn't do it. And it's emerged that he has instead left the country. There's been back and forth about exactly when and what what sort of pretext or whatever he gave. But um, I think it's uh, an act of bravery to have done that. He served in Moscow for the last 33 years. He's the president of the Conference of European Rabbis, big respected figure. But when asked to toe the line and endorse Putin's invasion, said no. And that is a moral stand. So a mention for him. But I'm afraid the Mensch Award has to go to just one, I was going to say one person, but it's not really a person because the winner surely is a bear. (laughs) The bear who took tea with Her Majesty the Queen. Um, I think people have seen this video. It went viral. Uh, It kicked off the Platinum Jubilee celebrations last weekend, uh, a video that had been made by the Queen. I mean, the Queen was really struggling to appear at some of these public events. She has mobility issues. She's 96 years old. It's difficult for her. But that she had filmed this absolutely charming little video with Paddington, the two of them taking tea. Paddington lifts up the teapot and drinks straight from the spout. They talk about marmalade sandwiches. If you haven't seen it yet, find it. Uh, Paddington is just so totally adorable. Everybody loves him. He's so sweet. The actor Ben Wishaw does his voice, which makes him even cuter. Volodymyr Zelensky did his voice for the Ukrainian edition. Um, But there is a Jewish connection here, which is that Paddington is in... And if you notice how Paddington is dressed with his little coat, and he used to have a a bag with a, a little brown paper tag, a label. The story is that Paddington Bear was inspired for the author Michael Bond by the sight of young Jewish refugee children stepping off a train at Reading in the Britain, kinder transport children in the Second World War, the sight of those children arriving, little refugee children who were so sweet, 
and so innocent, and yet really coming to this country as refugees from tragic circumstances was the inspiration for Paddington Bear. Paddington Bear is a refugee. And people have been making the point that under current British government policy, Paddington wouldn't be having tea with the Queen. He would be being shipped to Rwanda and deported there. But Paddington brings out something. Uh, he is adorable, and but he brings out something deeper about sympathy for refugees. So he is, I think, surely our mensch of the week. I agree. I think it's the first time we gave a mensch award to a bear. So... Yay us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a first. Other bears, really, the award is yours if you make yeah, a good I mean, case. Yeah, in- indeed, indeed, if you scale that height. Um, we should uh, wrap up our discussion for the week. Uh, we should say our thank yous, of course, to Guy Glazer and Omer Primat and Rom Atik and Irad Eshel. Do you want to remind our listeners, Jonathan, of our Facebook Group. I do. You must join our <laughs> Facebook group, Unholy Podcast, and the numbers really are growing. Do chime in there with ideas and opinions and thoughts for our episode. People have been doing that, sending questions you have. Uh, there is a conversation on the going on there, Facebook group, Unholy Podcast. So do find us there. And of course, in all the usual places, right, uh, rate, review. Uh, many of you have been doing that, and that does help. Great. And um, we shall meet next week, I think. Well, I'm very looking forward to seeing <laughs> and we'll, I think we might talk about the escape artist maybe maybe <laughs> um, thank you Yoni. it's been we'll, very good chatting see you next week we'll meet next week